It's Friday, April 21st. Welcome to Season 3 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Hi, I'm your host, Jeff Eaton. I'm a digital strategist with Lullabot, and every episode I chat with cool people about what's going on in the world of content strategy, digital publishing, and general cool nerdiness. Um, this time we're talking to Nas Urbina. He's an old friend of the podcast. Uh, he's been a guest uh, at least once before, but it feels like feels like forever. Um, and he's an expert in omni-channel and adaptive content strategy, which is super cool. I think that's what we talked about in the last uh, episode you were here. Um, and you're also the co-author of Content Strategy, Connecting the Dots Between Business, Brand, and Benefits. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Very glad to be here. Um, so it's it's funny we we sort of you know keep in touch and ping various you know ideas back and forth as as we're working on stuff. Um, I think we've been doing that for years now, um, and I think one of the things that we started talking about a couple of months ago was one of those cool moments when you realize that like a, a, a number of different colleagues have all been like sort of chewing on the same idea in parallel and i but i think that you had a, an interesting take on it you were talking about um domain modeling which is something that i think has sort of taken the content strategy world i won't say by storm but it's definitely like gaining traction as a, as a tool people use but you were talking about the addition of um journey mapping into it and I, I, I don't want to front load too much <laughs> into my <laughs> intro, but um, I thought that was really interesting. And would you mind just get doing like a real quick, like sketchy ex- explanation of like what domain modeling is and, and how it kind of differs from what people might think of as content modeling and then how journey mapping comes into that and and how you how you uh started putting those how you started putting that peanut butter and chocolate together (laughs) that's funny you're the second person to use that that phrase with me today (laughs) peanut butter and chocolate um so uh yeah so domain modeling for me when people ask me to define domain modeling although it is something that i that i do and i i work with work on with on with my clients. I feel like when someone says define domain modeling, it's like when someone says, give me a quick definition of irony. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things where I, I yeah, everyone knows what it is. Why, why do you have to ask me for definition? Um, yeah, so domain modeling, um, I'm going to try to avoid using uh, too many big words uh, right at the beginning, but domain modeling is essentially, if you're taking a subject domain, like um, uh, an organization's business or a market or um, a particular practice, then it is the mapping out of key actors um, in that as as a system and how they relate to each other. And and by so, actors, you don't just mean individuals. That could be like systems that a business has or you know important assets that are part of the process or whatever, right? Exactly. It's it's the list of the things and how they relate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, every time I've ever seen one, I don't know if there, if anyone would argue that there's another way to do it, but every time I've ever seen one and done one, it's laid out visually, kind of like a mind map, but it doesn't necessarily have a central node. Mm-hmm. 
So you have a, a map of the world, and like, um, sorry, my first uh, jargon word, ontology, uh, you are not, you're not just stating the things and how they group, you're stating the things and how they relate. So you have something like a... Um, re- a and, and in this sense, relate is like the, the verb in the verb sense, like how they interact with each other, not just how they are um, semantically similar to each other. Yes. So it's not like related keywords and it's not like related links. It's actual uh, three-part relationships. And that's where the ontology bit comes in. It's that in a, in a website, we would make hyperlinks between related items. Um, and in a, in a uh, map of keywords, we just have these bundles of related keywords like uh, song and dance, uh, CD and album. So, But here we're actually making uh, a three-part relationship where we have actor has relationship with other thing. So um, uh, music music lover buys CD and CD is made in factory and factory requires raw materials and so on and so on and so on. So you're laying out all the major actors in this, in this system and, and all these relationships. And what it's, what I think it's so awesomely does is replace reams and reams and reams of verbal description. So when you're doing uh, discovery in a client and you're trying to get an understanding of the client's world, um, their their business model, their problems, their their workflows, the the domain map replaces just so many pages and pages and pages and pages of notes and descriptions and powerpoints and blah de blah de blah, which become completely unmaintainable. Yeah. Uh, the kind of the bible on this topic for me, as far as I know, is um, domain driven design. Yes, by, I, I love yeah. that book. Uh, yeah, I honestly, I he uh, broke my nerd barrier about <laughs> two thirds of the way through, uh, and I never actually finished the thing. But I did love, 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 love um, uh, the first bits. And uh, Eric Evans is the author there. The mm-hmm. dude wants to check it out. Domain driven design. So if you are a proper developer and you've got more technical chops than I do, then you can probably make make your way straight through it very well. He comes from the world of software development. But it's applicable to just anybody who's doing anything related to content. Because yeah, it's, it's, oh, oh sorry, I, I get excited about this this very same book too for the same reasons. It, I mean, it's the it, it's not so much that there's a particular development methodology as that he lays out the case for um, the importance of this domain model, this like shared understanding of what these important actors are and how they relate to each other, being central to the communication between, say, the developers and the stakeholders. And you know, I would, in, in my work, I t- tend to extend that to talking about content editing and you know, design teams and stuff like that. That making sh- it, it's a tool for making sure that they're on the same page and have the same understanding about what the different moving pieces are and how they interact. Yeah, there's one there's one little thing which I want to add to that, which is I really love the fact that it freezes a project vocabulary. Yes. So he says that you put together your domain model and it describes all your actors, but each of them has a name. So we call them music lovers. We don't call them music fans. Mm-hmm. We don't call them, you know, uh, audience members. We just you know we p- pick a name for thing. Everything has a name and it has one name, and that's how we communicate with each other from that point on. So. Uh, when you get a lot of stakeholders in an organization, different departments will have their own uh, dialects for how they describe stuff, and that makes communication within the projects a little bit nightmarish. 
So that communication bit is having that common language and having a simple visual document where you can all come together and just look at it and say, okay, that's how this works. Oh, I never understood this bit over here, the top right corner, because that's not my department. I usually work over here in the bottom left. So I didn't realize. And and within a few, you know, with a few boxes and lines, I'm able to kind of get my head around what the rest of this organization is doing. And as an outsider, you then have a holistic picture of this domain, which may be, I don't know, plumbing or or nuclear physics or just something you've never had to, to wrap your head around. And you've got this one big picture, which has been verified by the client um, individually and in groups to say, yes, this is our world. This is our domain. I like it. I, I, yeah, and I think he refers to that even as the the ubiquitous language, which un, uh, for a, such a useful concept, it's sad because like the the canonical name for it ends up becoming a sort of mouthful, uh, a jargon Term. mouthful <laughs> in and of itself. But yeah, um, it, yeah it, it's that that sort of lens of looking through things has been so helpful. Um, and I think even as our design and um, development teams have been working with editorial teams a lot, it's been really, really helpful just in making sure that we don't, you know, it, 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 it's a persistent problem of, you know, editors describing, you know, describing goals that they're trying to achieve in terms of like, you know, page blocks on a screen or something like that. Designers having their own terminology for it. And the development team sort of cobbling together whatever they can to, you know, make that happen. But it's usually mm-hmm. like a, it's a weird sort of game of telephone when you don't have that shared vocabulary that keeps everybody on base. And yeah, huge, huge improvement. I, I love it. Uh, yeah, totally. So um, I think that uh, one of the one of the really cool things about having uh, this ubiquitous or what I like to say shared yes. <laughs> uh, project language is that it's not the language of any one team. So it doesn't become mm-hmm. digital team jargon. It doesn't become lawyer jargon. It doesn't become developer jargon. It's the domain as it actually exists in the real world. So you you simply by the act of collaborating on it, you punch out all of those opportunities to get all jargony and use specific terms. So you, you originally asked me about this in the context <laughs> of uh, customer journey mapping. Yes. So the I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background. So what happened with me was I was doing content modeling, which is what we talked about on the last time I was on the, on the podcast. Um, and the content modeling is doing the structure and the, the naming of content types uh, as assets in a system as opposed to web pages. So yes. a lot of people who work in digital work in websites. I... Um, luckily, I think, come from a non-website background. Um, uh, there's a lot of names you may have heard, myself, Ann Rockley, uh, Rahel Ann Bailey, Lisa Welchman, uh, James Mathewson, uh, and, uh, oh, what's, uh, she did the first um, content modeling and master skill. I can't, she's going to kill me for not remembering. Rachel Levenger. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, yes, yeah. Yeah, so all of us have a background not in websites. We come from content, but not website content. And I think that's that's really strong in uh, I think what's referred to as the technical content management community. And uh, yeah, like there's a strong background in. Um, it's not. I mean, it, it's obviously grown far beyond that at this point. But documentation is a really strong background, and a lot of the challenges of organizations that have to build 
reusable component-based technology that can be repurposed in all sorts of ways and localized in various languages and kept up to date, those are all like deep and central problems in documentation that it felt like it took the web two decades to really figure out that they had those problems. Exactly. And I think that the one that the one that's been really just it, it's been the hook that's been grabbing all of those ex tech commerce and thrusting them into center stage has been personalization and mm-hmm. an omnichannel. Yes. So um, when we were doing, let's say I'm doing uh, the manual, all, not the manual, because you get a manual for your toaster. If you're buying a brain scanner, I can tell you you're getting an encyclopedia. It's a whole suite of different documents that come with that uh, with that with that device. So each bit of that thing can have a 150 page manual, and there's 200 bits in it, which have all been swapped out at different points in its history. So every single client site has multiple instances of a hundred thousand page website, so that. You might have seven seven brain scanners at this hospital with 100,000 pages each. Maybe there's 90% duplication. Maybe there's 80% duplication. But then there's 20% which are not, which are Mm -hmm. specific to that machine in that configuration. And those versions of those pages go with that version of that machine at this point in time. So we were dealing with that 20 years ago. So now when somebody comes up and says, well, we got a, you know, we got multiple web properties and we have, you know, multiple uh, brands, but there's a parent company and we want to roll that out on multiple channels. We're and, like, fine. And, and now okay. we want to personalize it to certain kinds of customers. Exactly. Womp, womp. Um, and, <laughs> and so that's why it's becoming a very exciting time for us because finally the the the, the world has kind of said oh wait yeah we have we really do have these problems and they are very exciting commercially uh, and so we want people who have experience so what was happening with me was I was getting invited in to do this kind of content modeling content modeling not website uh, architectures and so we would model the content and what I what, what that would entail would be I would take a bunch of samples, um, you know, web pages and manuals and, and brochures and leaflets and emails, and I would um, analyze them all, and bring them together in a unified, deduplicated model that said, okay, well, this is how we do product descriptions, and here we have like uh, product names and, and short descriptions, and long descriptions, and uh, digital assets, and they can be reused here, here, and here, and so you get all sorts of efficiency benefits and everyone was happy, happy, happy because we could reuse our content and we could uh, do some personalization and everything. And then eventually I started going, you know what? I don't know if any of this is a good idea <laughs> because you've that, that's the me. That's the best record scratch moment. Exactly. I'm sitting there and like I'm collecting my paycheck, doing my content models. And it just, it just occurred to me to go, Hey, stop. Have you actually checked whether this is what we should be doing because all you're doing, all you've brought me in to do is tell me how to do this, which I'm already doing an order of magnitude faster and cheaper. And I'm like, sure. And we're doing it. And I'm like, what if that was the wrong thing to do? Like what, what if you just paid me a load of money and paid like a whole bunch of people collectively, a huge sum of money and bought a bunch of software so that you could do the same thing that you've always been doing. And that's not what you should be doing anymore. So but there's such an inertia in so many organizations to to do that to reinvent exactly what they're currently doing because of the comfort level I think. Yeah, and it's also I, I think that there's something uh, what I call like the the change budget in a in a group of human beings. Mm, so mm-hmm. within a project, um, 
there's only so much change that those humans can invest within the span of a project. So I actually specifically sometimes uh, spoon feed out the change because I just know that there's only so much that this, these people's brains will be able to take. So maybe we will bring over some stuff and we'll just move over to some new paradigms and trade them some new concepts over here and then we'll bring up this other stuff over next year because they're just gonna they're just gonna revolt and we'll all do a mass walkout if we try to do everything best practices tomorrow or you know iteration one or within the next 12 months or whatever it is so i put up my hand and i said uh, and i said the emperor has no clothes you have not you have no idea whether we should be doing this you just know it's what you've always been doing so enter uh, customer journey mapping. And what customer journey mapping is, is like the co the domain model is within the organization, so not the view of any one customer. Uh, what customer journey mapping does is it maps out the view of this whole system from the view of customers rather than the view of the, the brand. Because what usually happens is we don't do customer journeys. We do either customer life cycles, like... Like um, the marketing uh, funnel. Exactly. Unaware, prospect, evaluation, purchase, uh, maintenance, advocacy. Because, you know, that, said, that's, what, that's how I think of myself when I go throughout the day. I am a person unaware of many brands. <laughs> exactly. And I am currently an advocate of these. So the it's, it's just so not the real world. Um, and you know, you. I'm not saying that those those categorizations don't have any value, but that if that's your whole picture of your user experience, then you are setting yourselves up for some major uh, sort of major face palms. So, and what happens is what we do is we go in and we look at this this um, world and we say what it, what is the customer trying to accomplish? Not what are you trying to push on them. What a, why would they choose to engage your product or service? What is their end game? And let's look at the process of them getting to their end game. And that, you know, that breaks down. So you have, you have uh, journeys that, let's say, I'm triaging all my options. And then I move on to um, uh, the, the, the purchasing. But we're looking at it from a customer point of view throughout. We're not looking at it as data points. And we're not looking at it as operations on any one channel so when it's you're just their experience and what they're looking for or what they're doing and how they're encountering unit could be especially with uh, organizations that do like a lot of different channels or um you know an omni-channel work that's really important because if you're varying your message understanding what different messages are coming out and what, what trends from what meeting are important so that you don't end up doing being weird and contradictory and tone deaf uh, and, and context deaf. Yes. Oh, so, yeah. So we would, my, you know, my go-to example are our banking, because I've been doing a lot of banking stuff like, lately. And so you have researching a mortgage. And you can, you can say, this is what people do when they research mortgages. But if you throw persona into that, you know, when I research, research my first mortgage, it's a different thing, and I need different messages and different assets than when I am... Um, ah. researching a buy-to-let property. This is my sixth mortgage because this is how I make my money. I buy apartments and I refurbish them and I rent them out. So as a buy-to-let investor, I need very different messaging and I need very different content. So we're throwing that. That's a type of personalization by persona, which if we if we treat people as 
prospects and customers, we don't get the subtlety that we need. That's so, so one of the things that's always fascinated me about that, um, the, the challenge that I've encountered and, and most of the pro- most of the journey oriented projects that I've worked on have been relatively small. So I think I may just have not had a large enough body of source data to really efficiently do some of the stuff that you're talking talking about. But the combination of lack of sufficiently granular resources and um, organizations with basically you know eye, eyes bigger than their stomachs for the actual asset creation and maintenance um, mm-hmm. work. And then the other one is organizations that grossly overestimate um, how good their underlying signals are to determine what phase of the journey somebody is in or you know what context someone is in grossly um, underestimate or overestimate or, uh, sorry they grow they grossly overestimate that because they 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 start out with a lot of just so stories about scenarios they imagine someone being in mm-hmm. and us and just sort of gloss over the difficulty of determining at that moment that someone is in that context and just talk about how the right stuff could be there and how we would assemble it and how we would do this but the how will we actually know they're in that context is often glossed over. How do you how do you tackle those two pieces? I yeah, I'll I'll stick to the small questions for now. <laughs> so it's a it varies wildly by who are we talking about and how are we interacting with them. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about uh, let's say um, a restaurant brand then your relationship with organizations is hugely different than if you're talking about, let's say, a, a B2B enterprise software company. Um, it's different than a pharmaceuticals company. It's different than a bank, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it, it's kind of horses for courses. You have a lot more information if you have long-standing intimate relationships with your clients with which to infer things. And then you have a much higher likelihood of them having an account and a login and things that will allow you to really target them. Otherwise, then you then you have to make, like we would on any other type of web personalization project, say, if you're clicking on these like intro to, like getting your first mortgage, like if you ever click on that article ever, then we can guess that there's a good likelihood you might we might want to nudge you in a certain direction. Uh, but if you, if we know you and you're logged in, we know your age and whether you have a mortgage with us already, then we can make other kinds of inferences. So I don't think that there's any one answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will, my default position when anyone asks me of, of the whole like, how how much do we need to invest and what if we don't have a lot of money? My default position for that is is pragmatism. Is when you're doing journey mapping, you do as much journey mapping and then you do as much with the results of that journey map as is commercially viable and interesting for your business. Mm -hmm. So you have to say, all right, well, we sell candy bars. So the candy bar journey, you know, we're just not going to really target people in this way. We can just run it as a numbers game. If you are a bank, if you are, um, uh, you know, any like a major enterprise who has, uh, let's say, a, a multi-touch sales relationship, then you're really going to look at journeys. 
um, if you are, let's say, uh, not just just making a candy bar, but you are a supermarket or you make a whole range of, of uh, home food goods, then you might want to really explore the experience of different types of consumers. Uh, it just, so it just depends how much value there is in it for you. I'll come back to my banking example. Uh, with I, I suggested the mortgage thing and the persona. This is a mortgage thing and uh, same persona, different context. So analyzing the journey of I've lost my card and I want to replace it. I've lost it, you know, coming home one night in a taxi versus I'm on vacation with my kids and I've lost my card and they got to eat. Yeah, the, I mean, the immediacy and, of that scenario is very different. Totally. And the other related information I li- might need, like how to do an international uh, bank transfer without my bank card, um, that, that I need different content. So that, that's one of the reasons we, we, we can do journey mapping, but we would do journey mapping on lost card because that's one of the top things that people do with their bank. Mm-hmm. Like they just do regular banking most of the time. And the, one of the bigger journeys is I lost my card. And if you screw it up, it's really bad. They, your customer gets very upset with you. You know, it's, it's funny that, um, that idea of specifically paying attention to like the, um, I don't, I don't know if the emotional tone uh, or maybe the irritation threshold is the right way to talk <laughs> about that. It's something that we did in a recent project, um, Angie's List. Uh, it's a company that does, they basically keep track of all of the um, service providers like um, construction, you know, uh, plumbing, daycare, whatever in a given area. And people can come in and just say, hey, I need a plumber in... Um, you know, I, I need a plumber in Atlantic City, New Jersey, you know, right, you know, right now. Um, and it'll pull up a list. And there's also all kinds of, you know, accompanying content, you know, articles on, you know, how to, you know, repair a toilet or, you know, do you want to sign up for, you know, premium membership, all that kind of stuff that's woven into, you know, what they present when you search for that. But one of the things that they wanted to start doing was tailoring that and making it better. And what the, the big breakthrough was working with them and identifying like situations that the customers find or the even prospective customers find themselves in um, as they hit the site and are looking for that information, even if they're not really different in terms of the, you know, in business engagement and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how, even with a limited number of signals, what best guesses can we make about the, um, you know, about the threshold, those, you know, irritation thresholds based on the kinds of services they're looking for. We were, right. we, we modeled if I'm looking out, for 20, if I'm looking for 24 hour plumbers, I'm probably yeah. in a worse situation than if I'm just looking right. for plumbers. And, and like the, the, the prototypical um, scenario we were talking about was kitchen remodeling versus um, gas leak repair. You know, the odds that someone is sort of, you know, perusing gas leak repair services at two in the morning for their, you know, for their personal edification and maybe looking for a photo gallery of gas leak repairs or something like that. (laughs) Very low. But at the same time, most people who are browsing through, say, a photo gallery of kitchen remodeling are not looking for, you need remodeling fast, call this 800 number and we'll hook you up with something. So um, even though they had a fairly low number of like, um, analytical signals or customer signals to start with, the work of mapping out a lot of those things from the 
for an I, uh, uh, you know a person first gets the idea that they might want to do something to we're working with you to you know find a contractor even if right at the beginning of the project they didn't have all the tools to fully tailor everything to you know all the various steps even when only a few choices could be made having that having a fuller picture of what the customer was trying to accomplish or what state they might be in really helped us even with design module prioritization decisions so you've just made the link which uh i i use in to kind of get customers excited about this when they come to me for content modeling so what i'm saying is what we're doing is we're mapping this out so that we can map needs to the questions that someone might have in a certain context in a, at a certain point of time. And that tells us what kind of content we need to make. So it gives us um, editorial priorities. Ah, and, yeah. yep. And it's it, the same thing it, with them. Exactly. And it gives them content types they may not have thought of. So they're like, hey, we need a, a comparison guide. We describe product A over here. We describe product B over here. We don't have any comparators. We never thought of that before because we never, each of us works in our team for our products and we're describe our product products perfectly and we market them very well. So done. Uh, and once you go outside of your world and you look back in, you go, no, you sell four products. And from an outside point of view, you may know why they're different. You may know when and how I want to get them, but I don't. So the, that external view uh, really, really helps people say, hey, oh, wait, you know, this, client, this content we've been making for years, maybe we can't find anybody who ever needs that, really, at any time they would need it. So maybe we could deprioritize it or kill it. And this other thing we never even thought of uh, needs to be created. And this other stuff is really inappropriate and not fit for purpose. So we have to allocate some time and some uh, thinking into how we handle that. You know, it um, it, I, I find that really funny because um, it ties into like gap analysis um, and and auditing something that's always been a fairly like, big part of you know content strategy work when reviewing what kind of you know assets a company already has. But the funny thing is is that often the gap analysis itself just sort of takes as an assumption a previously existing list of things we're trying to, you know, you know, things that we're trying to put out there and publish. Um, and it's very easy for the gap analysis to just focus on essentially achieving balance in content, not filling really new un untapped needs. And it, exactly. it, it feels like this approach, the way you're describing it, it feeds right into that idea of gap analysis and even I guess the the initial development process of identifying new materials that could be very useful. Absolutely. And so what I said was we have to do this if we're going to do adaptive content for omnichannel and personalization because otherwise I can make a bunch of stuff but what what are we going to present to who and when and on what channels? And the, they, they said they wanted omnichannel, they said they wanted personalization, but it amazes me that that who, what, when, where, why thinking hadn't been done. So the journey map is a way to do that and say, all right, well, people initially ask this kind of question a lot, and we've seen them coming in through Google. So this is what we're going to put in the results page as a knowledge graph so Google can present it right there. 
as opposed to this stuff, which is going to be on landing pages, or this stuff, which is going to be after a login, and so on. It's all those kind of decisions. And What's, what, go, what oh, goes on a PDF? What goes? What gets you, printed and put in the retail environment? You're warming my heart. You're warming oh. my heart. That, that, that specifically that idea of of deliberately exposing like the primary information that somebody may be looking for via the open graph data that Google shows and stuff like that. That's it, it's so exciting to see that kind of stuff treating. I mean, it's so it's so exciting to hear you treating um, those kinds of like search engine and you know surfacing tools as an actual means of communicating with um, with um, prospective users rather than just a funnel for getting people to click. It's it amazes me because we have all these channels and we, we're so aware. Oh man, so many channels to think about. Yet we still so often think about web pages. How do we get people to get our pages will be ranked high and people will come to our website because then they'll click, and we just assume that is per, per se the good goal. Exactly. So what we do in journey mapping is we start with an overall question, which. Which mortgage is right for me? I'm in Greece and I lost my card. What do I do? Uh, how do I get my set-top box installed? How do I upgrade to to digital um, digital TV? And then we break that question down into sub-questions and say, what is the answer? What is the content that answers that question? And then we model that content. So it could be content that appears in a knowledge graph, but it could be also content that also appears in a leaflet that we mail out or mm -hmm. in a mailer or a newsletter. So we answer the question um, and we manage the content that answers those questions that people really have. We completely divorce it from channel and then we reapply channel later. The, to come Teddy stuff. Circle, it is, it is. So the exciting bit is if we come full circle, that workshopping process of looking at customer journeys almost spits domain models out the other side. It, it, it is funny that once you start looking at things through that lens and, you know, assume this is what we're working towards, it, a lot of stuff that it felt like we, we spent so much time trying to figure out where to put it and where this knowledge ought to go really clicks into place nicely. Exactly. That, that, that's exactly it. So when I kind of, when we were talking on email about doing the podcast, it's, I said, okay, I'm doing, I need a content model. I need to do journey maps to know how to do my content model, <coughs> but to even understand, as I'm understanding this world, I'm going to have to do uh, th these journey maps and I should document that in the domain model. It's just so, for me. Why won't, even if I don't hand it to the client and then pretty soon you've got a new line of service. <laughs> exactly. So um, if to j just connect the dots properly, we do, we do customer journey mapping and that will give us kind of blobs of content. Mm-hmm because they answer questions, but that's not a content model yet. But as we're doing all those journey maps, we'll be talking about people, places, things, systems, touch points, content assets. And those tie-in, that's, that's exactly what the content modeling process needs in order to arrive at a good content model. Yes, but the domain model is that capture step before that. Mm -hmm. So before we've actually expressed that out with all the fields and all the bits, all the data types that are in the content model, we'll say, well, well, who does what when? And so, for example, if this person's doing this over here, they've lost their card, and they want to do, um, you know, they want to get it replaced, 
then who are they touching and and what are the t- what are the relationships between the actors in that system and we'll capture that we won't be ready to content model yet but we can capture it in domain model so journey mapping um first gets you the domain model which is so useful for so many other project reasons but then if you are the content person and the content modeler you take that domain model and then you take multiple journey maps and then you you use that as your fodder for doing a good personalization ready omnichannel content model. And yeah, so, it, oh, the, sorry, the, go, the, ahead. The, go like, ahead. Like like dominoes, so you do customer journey mapping, domain model comes out of that, and then your third deliverable is your content model. And I'm finding that just makes good work as opposed to before, which was all isolated and fragmented. And journey maps were something that marketing did about sales funnel and domain models were kind of developer thing and then content models were content people thing. If you treat them as a series of events feeding into each other in a in a collaborating project group, it's amazing. You know, it's it's funny because, and I think this is you know what we were talking about when we first discussed the idea of you know doing the podcast. Um, the I, I'm actually doing a, a workshop at Confab about something sort of adjacent to this. It's specifically about using about identifying different kinds of deliverables that different um, different disciplines tend to use and f- and relating them back to how the process of content modeling, the way a lot of us think about it, relies on the insights that all of these different things are being produced and bringing an organization towards a more holistic process of using these things to gain knowledge and iterating a content model based on them. Like, you know, using a journey map to identify when your content model will have to get richer and, Mm. you know, using a domain model to recognize things like, hey, actually, we're going to need to store more data because this is going to be happening happening in you know a couple of different states and we need to be able to record which thing is appropriate for which scenario you know a lot of those things they historically if it's not done in the process that you're describing it, it it's the changes to the content model itself are very ad hoc and it, it's sort of when we hit a wall and a thing we know we need to do doesn't work and we realize the content model is insufficient, something new gets bolted onto it. And that's yeah. deeply dissatisfying. It's we're, we're setting up a process that encourages organic growth instead of strategic development. Yep. Yep. So that's that for me, that's like the most exciting thing that's happening to me right now. <laughs> or uh, what, like that's definitely top three. That's really, I think just, uh, uh what I want to get out there into the world of there's a better way. Uh, Cause I think that there's so many projects which are lacking this kind of um, customer centric methodology from discovery work all the way through to editorial planning and campaign planning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's it, again, it's, it's so many aspects of it get domain siloed by, you know, what team is working on it. And even if a final deliverable gets handed over the wall at some point, that understanding of here is a way we really look at things doesn't, doesn't translate. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you cool. know, it's, it's funny because this has been a fascinating conversation, but when we started, you actually said, Oh, Hey, you know, there's, there's even more stuff that we could talk about. So I think we're going to try to do something that's a first for insert content here. We're going to do a two parter and, uh, we'll, we'll we're going to break for this week and, uh, Look forward to uh, our next episode, episode three, where Naz is going to be back and we're going to talk about, this is fantastic, artificial intelligence 
in uh, in content and what that means. So awesome. if you if you think that looks this that sounds great, um, come back and uh, be ready for the next episode. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure as always.